You may take your seats. Well, uh, it's good to be with you again tonight as we continue our series on the, the greatest story ever told. Um, it, was, it was fun to get to meet some of you during the break. Uh, I um, got to go out and play some basketball with some of you. And uh, I mean, I, I use the word play basketball pretty loosely when it comes to myself. Um, but, but those guys were very gracious to let me come and, and run with them. So, well, today, uh, tonight, I want to begin with uh, some audience participation. Some audience participation. We're going to do a little word game association. All right? So I'm going to name an animal, and I want you to yell out whatever words come to your mind. All right? I'm going to name an animal, and you're going to just yell out whatever word comes to mind, and It'll be great. It'll be great. All right. So uh, what do you think of what, what word comes to your mind when I say the word dog? Domesticated, I heard. What else? Wolf. Wolf. What else? Loyal. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. How about cat? Meow. Okay. What else? Fur. Okay. Oh, what? Purr. Okay. Feisty? Yes. That's the nice way of saying evil. Um, sorry for you cat people out there. There is still yet time to repent. Um, how about lion? Roar, fierce, what else? Big, king, yes, yes. So I can't prove this from the Bible, but I, I think lions were there in the garden. And after the fall, they devolved into house cats. I, that's just, that's my theory. I'm sticking to it. Um, wolf. Pack, dog, what else? Huh? Alpha dog, okay, what else? Wolf, anything else? All right, all right, wolf, okay. Um, sheep. I hear ba, I hear what else? You hear wolf? I don't, I don't know if sheep will like that association there. Oh, oh, wool. I thought he said wolf. Wool. Okay. What else? Anything else? Mutton. So he wants to eat the sheep. Okay. I, I get it. I get it. All right. Sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What about, and this is similar, but what about the word lamb? Shop. That's good. Anything else? Gentle? Okay. So, you know, it's interesting because sheep and lamb, obviously, they're, they're, they're similar. What's the difference between a lamb and a sheep? A lamb is, uh, essentially, a young sheep, right? A younger sheep. And, and what's the difference between the way the Bible speaks of these two animals? Oftentimes, sheep get lost and, and lambs get slain. That's how the Bible often describes lambs. In the last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation, by the way, it's Revelation, not Revelations. Tuck that away for knowledge. Also, the book of Psalms is plural, but then you read Psalm 14 or 73 or whatever. Just tuck that away for knowledge. The more you know. That's for the older people. Never mind. Never. Anyway, that's okay. Uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus as the conquering warrior 
who destroys all his enemies, and the, the good king who reigns with righteousness and might. But surprisingly, the book of Revelation most often refers to Jesus, not as a lion or something like that, but the book of Revelation most often refers to Jesus as the lamb. And I don't just mean more than any other animals, but more than any other uh, title or name or description. In fact, in the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus is almost exclusively called the lamb. Almost exclusively. Uh, for instance, you just listen to these, Revelation 21, 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Twenty-one, twenty-three. the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Verse 27, only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, 3, the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. Obviously, Jesus isn't identified as a lamb uh, because of how fearsome lambs are or how tasty lambs are. Uh, Jesus is identified as a lamb because that best describes the, the apex of his saving work for us on the cross. My guess is that most of what I'll be teaching tonight, I'm going to take this off real quick. Sorry, I forgot about this. It swings around. Anyway, uh, my guess is that most of what I'll be teaching tonight is not new, but, but I hope that by tracing this theme all the way from Genesis to Revelation, that, that you'd gain a new appreciation for God's mercy and for Jesus the Lamb. And we ought to be humbled when we remember that this sacrificial lamb is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. I think that's well put. Uh, brothers and sisters, it, he is a king of a, of a strange kingdom, and we are a part of that kingdom and followers of that king. And so as we walk through Scripture, I hope that this would motivate your love for the king and that this would uh, model your life for the king. And actually, uh, instead of beginning in Genesis, I, I want to first preface our time with a passage in Luke 24. This is at the end of Jesus' life. Actually, after he rose from the dead, after his resurrection, he meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, starting in verse 25, he has this conversation with them, and, and he actually rebukes them. In Luke 24, verse 25, I want you to listen to these words. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I, I don't feel too bad for going from Moses all the way to the end because Jesus apparently did that on the road once. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And they didn't recognize him. That's the thing. They didn't know this was Jesus. Verse 30, so he was at table with them. He, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts 
burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. I am not as good a teacher or preacher as Jesus, so let's get all of our expectations down a notch. But my goal, my prayer, my hope is that as we walk through the scriptures, we would have that same experience to have those burning hearts within us. As we see the plan of God, not by accident, not by happenstance, but the the perfectly ordained, sovereign plan of God from the very beginning, traced out through Scripture, that as we see this plan unfold, I would hope that each and every one of us would have burning hearts, burning with love for God, burning with awe and amazement and worship for our sovereign Savior. That is my goal. All right? So now with that, let's... Let's turn back. Let's turn back all the way to, to Genesis. And we'll start in Genesis chapter 2 tonight. And again, we're walking through our four chapters uh, of, of the storyline of the Bible. And we're going to begin with sacrifice in the garden. Sacrifice in the garden. I want you to look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. These words are familiar to you. You understand this. He he is setting for them the parameters. You, You can eat of every tree but one. If you eat of this tree, you will die. In that day you will surely die. It's emphatic. You jump down to chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. This is familiar territory for us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They ate of the fruit they did the one thing God commanded them not to. Now, God finds them. They're hiding. He pronounces curses on, uh, on the serpent and, and on the ground. He gives consequences for, for the man and the woman. And then you jump down to verse 21. Genesis three twenty one. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, this is really interesting here. When they sinned, they knew they were naked. There was shame. There was guilt. They tried to hide themselves with fig leaves. I don't want to read too much into these things, but uh, there's a sense in which fig leaves, uh, this was uh, trying to use their own efforts. They were trying to use their own efforts based on things that they grew from the ground to cover themselves. But that was not sufficient. And in the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were supposed to die. Did they die? Sort of, but but not really. I think theologians can debate this. Uh, Some would say that it was always spiritual death in mind. I, I wonder if this was meant to be physical death in the original intention there. But they didn't die that day. At least not physically. I've, I've heard one pastor say it this way, and I thought it was really helpful. In the day they ate of the fruit, it was, it was, it was as if you had a, a beautiful flower, maybe a, a dahlia, perhaps, or a 
peony or baby's breath. That's the one. That's the one I was thinking of. And the moment you cut that flower, the, the stem, it's dead. It's dead, but it takes a while for you to see the death, but it's already dead. And in a way, that's what happened in the garden. The moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, mankind died spiritually. Though the effects of it would be borne out over time. But still, I, I, I would lean towards, I think this was physical death that was, um, uh, that, that was meant by God. But they didn't die, but something else died that day. Because they, they covered themselves with fig leaves, but it wasn't enough. God had to cover them with skins, and so uh, perhaps it was leopard print. I don't know. There was some animal, right? There was some animal that God had to kill in order to cover Adam and Eve for their sins. And, and animals don't just lend out their skin. So this was the first death that happened. Adam and Eve could not cover their sins by their works. They couldn't cover their sins by their own efforts. There had to be an animal that was killed for that skin to be put over them. This would have been a shock to the system for them because they had not seen death before. Before this moment, they lived in the Garden of Eden. There's no sin. There's no death. And now they saw blood. They saw death. And this clothing that covered them was a constant reminder. We ate of the fruit. We should have died. We didn't. That animal died instead. This must have left quite an impression on Adam and Eve because it seems that this information was somehow passed on to their children. It seems, perhaps, that this information was passed on to their children. So in Genesis 4, we read of their two sons, Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his uh, offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, we can't know for sure, but reading this in context from Genesis 3, it, it would seem that there was something going on here where there was an understanding that they were to offer these things. Uh, verse 3 says, in the course of time. You could translate that at the end of days or at some, some set time. There was some acknowledgement in their minds that there was a certain pattern of time they were supposed to follow. In the course of time, they brought an offering to the Lord. Now, if you think about this, you know, sometimes you just read over these words and you don't think about it much. But they brought an offering to the Lord. Where did they bring it? Any guesses? Any guesses? An altar? Where would that altar be? Perhaps, perhaps it was before the cherubim at the entrance to the garden. We, again, I, I don't want to say too much, but we, we can't know for sure. But it says at the course of time, they brought an offering to the Lord. Where was the Lord last seen? Walking in the garden. They perhaps brought this offering to the presence of the Lord, standing by the cherubim, and they brought their offerings. One brought the fruit of his own efforts from the ground. 
the other brought an animal sacrifice from the flock. It doesn't say exactly what kind of animal, but it says from the flock, which I think is very interesting. Whether it's a sheep, a goat, or something like that, but it's, he's a keeper of the flock. You see, I, I, I see here in Genesis both 3 and 4 that the idea of sacrifice had been implied and had been passed on because otherwise, if you read this, it seems that it seems a little unfair to Cain. Like, like Cain didn't know, but it would seem that Cain should have known. And in fact, God gives him a chance. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Verse 6, if you do well, will you not be accepted? God is not out to get Cain. He wants Cain to do the right thing. But instead of offering an animal sacrifice, Cain goes and kills his brother. So the the idea of sacrifice, I, I believe, begins here. The seed of it begins here in the garden, both with the animal that is slain to cover Adam and Eve. And then you see this offering that's brought to the Lord. And this offering of an animal is accepted. I believe this begins the concepts. I'm not saying it's a full-blown uh, teaching on atonement and, and, and ransom and, and substitutionary death, but here we begin to see perhaps the initial foundations laid for when I sin, there's death, and instead of me, there needs to be a substitute. And God requires animal death. The work of our hands won't do, so we come in faith offering the sacrifice that he requires. They, they didn't understand all the pieces, but they said, okay, if this, is, if this is what the Lord desires, who wants, I will do this in faith. There's a substitute required of some sort. So that's the first chapter, sacrifice in the garden. We jump ahead to the next chapter, sacrifice in Israel. Sacrifice in Israel. <clears throat> The pattern is set that sacrifices were made to God in order to worship. You can read all about how Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all built altars. And, and by saying they built altars, this was shorthand for saying they performed animal sacrifices. It's interesting because we don't, we don't get commands for the whole, the whole sacrificial system until way later with Moses. But even from the beginning, there was this understanding. They built altars, and whenever it built, they built an altar, they made sacrifices. That was the purpose of an altar. So all throughout these early chapters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Noah, they were making sacrifices on these altars. And then you get to Genesis 22. And, and this begins to, to lay some unique and, and profound uh, pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. In Genesis 22, we have the story of Abraham offering Isaac. And let me, let me just read this for you. This is somewhat familiar, but I want you to pick up on some details here. Starting in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Note those words. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he took the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. God chose the place. God chose the place in the land of Moriah on a mountain. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now let me just pause here. Uh, The Old Testament often moves quickly. But at certain points, it slows down and gives detail. Why? It says twice, they went, both of them, together together, almost to emphasize, to draw you into the drama of this story of this father and this son walking together and this son trusting his father. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, like just piling on these descriptive words. This is hard. And Abraham walked in faith. Verse 9, and when they came to the place of which God had told him. Again, note the sovereignty of God in all this. He didn't choose the place God told him where. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son substitution so abraham called the name of that place the lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the lord it shall be provided let me just pause here if you look perhaps your bible has a footnote there on that last phrase on the mount of the lord it shall be provided the footnote says or he will be seen on the mount of the lord he will be seen there's a reason that it says that there because that it really could legitimately be translated both ways. I want you to keep that in mind as well. So remember, Abraham is expecting an offspring, a son, to receive the promises through which blessing comes to the world. And, and he has this son after waiting years. He's an old man. This miracle child comes and God says, sacrifice him and Abraham trusts God. This happens on Mount Moriah. It's it's selected by God. They went together. This is your son, your only son, whom you love. And at the end, God says, wait, stop, don't touch the boy. And he provided a substitute. And the name of that place is called the Lord will provide or he will be seen. It's interesting. Again, when you read the Old Testament and you come across these little details, it's like, well, why do I care about this place called Moriah? If the Bible tells you, it's because it matters. Keep that in mind here. So you see, again, the, the idea of substitution becomes to, uh, starts to come into greater focus. This idea of sacrifice, this idea of substitution, this idea of provision from God, this, this starts to take shape. It's still blurry, but it's coming together. The Lord will provide. This is future. There's more to come. You, you jump ahead to, to Exodus, and again, I don't want to 
take too much time in Exodus because I know that you are familiar with that from Pastor Steve's preaching, but in Exodus chapter 12, we have the, the Passover instituted. And again, to, to just briefly remind you of what, what is happening there, on the 10th plague, God says, I will strike the firstborn in all the land. Now, it's interesting because some of the plagues, he made a distinction. I'm going to afflict Egypt, but not Israel. I'm going to afflict, afflict Egypt, but not the, my people living in Gershom. But here, he says, everybody. Everybody, the firstborn, is going to be slain unless, unless you do this task. You take a lamb. You take a lamb, you bring it into your home on the 10th day. It lives with you for four days. On the 14th day, you slay it. You take its blood and put it on the door. And all of you are inside and you eat the the meat of that lamb and you are ready to go with your belt on because it's the Lord's Passover. Because the angel of the Lord will come through striking the firstborn in every household. But if it sees the blood, it will pass over the house. And so you see again this idea of substitution, this idea of an animal sacrifice, this idea of blood covering. It says in Exodus 12, 46, that they are not to break any of its bones. Keep that in mind as well. And the Passover and the Exodus become a paradigm of salvation. It becomes the paradigm of salvation. Sometimes we talk about New Testament Christians, we today, that we should be cross-centered Christians, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered, all that. All those terms kind of combined together. The Old Testament saints were, if you could put it this way, they were Exodus-centered. The Exodus was the greatest moment of God's salvation. They looked back at that and said, that's what salvation is. And, and so they were Exodus-centered, and the Passover was meant to remind them, to point them back, remember what God did, remember what God did. So they would take a lamb every year, and they would do this whole thing every year to remind them. And when kids would, would do this with their families, they were, they were supposed to ask, Dad, Mom, why do we do this? Why do we get a pet lamb for four days and then kill it? Every time, this is very traumatic to me. And they say, because it's the Lord's Passover. We need to remember. But not only remember, but to look ahead to something greater where the Lord will provide. That's, that's my add-on. They didn't necessarily say that, perhaps. Now, a, a little side note in the book of Exodus. If you go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is the infamous golden calf scene. Israel sins by worshiping this golden calf. And, and what's interesting is, after the golden calf incident, Moses tries to make atonement but could not. I want you to just notice this. Exodus 32, verses 30 to 32. Exodus 32, starting in verse 30. Uh, Moses is, is the most humble man. Moses is the, the leader that God has chosen. He's all these things. And in verse 30, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I'm going to try. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, now how is he going to make atonement? Did he bring a lamb? Did he bring a bunch of lambs? What did he do? Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He tries to make atonement by standing in place of Israel. He tries to say, Lord, take me, spare them. God said, no. Moses, you can't do it. We 
as New Testament Christians, understand why. But in that moment, you see the heart of Moses, and Moses understood the heart of God. He understood the need for sacrifice, the need for substitution, the need for God's justice. And so he says, take me. God says, no. Later in Exodus 33, Moses prays and says, show me your glory. And and that leads to one of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible. He says, show me your glory. And God grants him his request in chapter 34. So turn to Exodus 34. Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God responds in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, this is glorious stuff. But, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is an amazing moment. Remember that Moses, he he wants to see God's glory. God says, I can't let you see my face. No man may see me and live, but I'll I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass before you. And as I'm passing by, I'll let you see the the after effects of my glory, just the, the passing glow of my glory. I'll let you see that. And it was That alone was enough that when Moses came down the mountain, his face would glow. What would you give to have been there? What would you have given to see that, to see what Moses saw? He saw the after effects of God's glory. But what's fascinating is this. He doesn't tell you a word about what he saw. He tells you what he heard. Because that's the key. God, I'll, I'll... God says, I'll show you a little bit, but I'm going to proclaim my name. By proclaiming his name, it's not just like, I mean, you know, for me, I have to proclaim my name to people several times before they get it right because I've got a weird name. But that's not what God is talking about. When he proclaims his name, he is describing himself. His name represents all that he is. And so to proclaim his name is to exposit, to declare, to proclaim who he is in his fullness. He is proclaiming his name to show his glory. And what is the essence of God's glory? It's not just his might to destroy Egypt. The essence of his glory here, he says, is that he is gracious, that he forgives sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin to a thousand generations. He is gracious beyond what we can imagine. But he is righteous. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And you know what? When we are thinking rightly, that's the exact kind of God we want. I mean, if you're a sinner tonight... um, Show of hands, right? No, that's all of us. If you're a sinner tonight, it is good news that God is gracious. But also, at the end of the day, we we need and we want a God who is also righteous. I mean, when you get cut off on the 101, you want God's righteousness. When you read about horrific incidents of abuse of women, of children. There's something wrong with you if you don't want the justice of God. 
We want a God who is right and will do what is right and will stop the bad guys, not just shrug his shoulders and say, I'm a forgiving God. What do you want me to do? We need a God who is righteous and gracious. And God says, I am both. This is, this is the glory of God here on display. But there's a mystery here. It's almost like a riddle. How can he forgive and also be just? How can he be merciful and also righteous? How can this go together, God? You just said you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but you won't clear the guilty. How does this work? And yet this is the glory of God. This is a riddle for the rest of the Old Testament. It's not solved until we get out of the Old Testament. You jump ahead from Exodus to Leviticus 16. And again, just trying to show some highlights here. Leviticus 16 is, is the chapter that is about that is about the day of atonement. The book of Leviticus is, is full of sacrifices. It comes right after Exodus because if God dwells in a tent in your midst, as he does at the end of Exodus, then you need to know how to live with a holy God in your presence without being struck dead. And the answer to that is you need to have sacrifices. You need to have sacrifices that cleanse you, that cleanse the temple. You need to have atonement. And so there's all these sacrifices throughout the book of Leviticus. And then it gets to, it, it culminates and highlights, uh, comes to a climax in Leviticus 16 on the day of atonement. Perhaps you've heard of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And on that day, that was the only day that the high priest, the one person, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He could go behind the veil with the cherubim. He could enter into, as it were, kind of like the garden. But he didn't go in just to kind of sit down and relax and say, hey, what's up? He had to go in to perform sacrifices. He had to make sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of the people. He had to slay bulls and, and, and goats. In fact, there were two goats. One, they would cast lots. One would be sacrificed and his blood would be sprinkled inside the Holy of Holies. The other, he would lay his hands on top, confess the sins of all of Israel, and they would release it into the wilderness. To, to picture two things, the, the slaughtering of the animal for forgiveness, but also the, the sending away of the animal after confessing sin over it to show that the sin is taken away. It's paid for and taken away. Both of these things, both of these pictures are here. This priest could enter in only one time a year. Again, just for time, I'm going to, I won't read through Levit Leviticus 16. It's certainly worth your time to read. Once a year in there. And why these animal sacrifices, Leviticus 17.11 explains. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. When you slay an animal and its blood is poured out, the life is in the blood, meaning that, that animal has died. Atonement has to be made by death. And so they're, they're getting all these pictures. They're getting the, the picture of the Passover. They're getting the picture of the Day of Atonement, confession of sin, sending it away. They're getting this idea of, of, of substitution, of, of atonement, of life being given up. You fast forward to the wilderness wanderings in the tabernacle, or, or, or from the wilderness wanderings in the tabernacle, you fast forward to the temple in Jerusalem. And it's, this, is, this is so amazing. Uh, First Chronicles 21, turn, turn there. First Chronicles 21 is after Samuel and Kings. It's not yet at, at, at the Psalms. First Chronicles 21. David 
David calls for a census of the people. He calls for a census of the people. And he didn't take the, the, the right steps to do so. And so the Lord was displeased. And the Lord sent a pestilence against Israel. He sent a, a, a plague against Israel. And in First Chronicles 21, I want you to see what happens here. 21 verse 14, Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. You and yourself, uh, and you yourself will have severe sickness with a disease in your bowels until your bowels, okay, I, I, I should just skip that part. Um, wait, I'm in the wrong spot. I'm in Second Chronicles, that's why. Okay, someone should have stopped me. Sorry, for, yeah, you can read that other part later. That's very interesting. First Chronicles 21 Verse 14, I was like, this isn't right. What is going on here? Okay, verse 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw. The Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was, who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Let me, let me pause there. The Lord saw. I hope you heard me pause there. Keep that in mind. Verse 16. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a sword, uh, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. He tries the same line as Moses here, doesn't he? Strike me, leave your people out of it. Forgive them. It was my sin. He tries the same line as Moses. The Lord saw, because we're going to see in another passage, this takes place on a, on a mountain that has a name. This takes place at Moriah, where it will be provided slash where the Lord saw. You jump down to verse 18 now. The angel of the Lord had commanded Gad, he's the prophet, to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and he turned and saw the angel. And his four sons were with him, hid themselves. They were scared. And David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David and, and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. Uh, it's yours, and so on and so forth. Finally, he, he, he buys it from Ornan at a full price. Verse 26, And David built there an altar to the Lord. And presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw that the Lord was, had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. So the, the tabernacle wasn't there, but he made an offering there that stayed the hand of God. Now keep all that in mind and turn one book over to the right to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. 
David didn't build the temple, Solomon did. And here it says in 2 Chronicles 3, 1, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You see, these threads are starting to come together. The Lord will provide, the Lord saw that happened on Mount Moriah, and now David has to offer offerings and make sacrifices there on Mount Moriah. And there Solomon builds a temple where, where God's ark would rest and where sacrifices would be made. This is all coming together. There's all these threads of this sacrificial system that's getting woven together into this strong rope. But the issue is, th- these were all pictures and shadows. And if you're reading the Old Testament correctly, you would understand that these animal sacrifices don't ultimately take away sin. They're doing this in faith, but they, they ultimately can't take away sin. It, it, the, the, the Old Testament saints should have understood that. And, and that's why in Hebrews 10, and you can, you can just listen to these words. In Hebrews 10, it, it even says as, as much. It says in Hebrews 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The the law with its sacrificial system was a shadow. It was pointing to something, but it itself was powerless. It says in verse 3, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins it was a reminder it was a shadow it was pointing forward to something else because the lord will provide that was the point of the old testament now time doesn't permit but you could you can read through isaiah 53 actually no time doesn't permit isaiah 53 It's familiar, but after seeing these threads woven together, I I want you to hear these words afresh. This section really starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, but I'm going to start at verse 1 of chapter 53. Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one they're waiting for, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This is supposed to be the Messiah. This is supposed to be the the king. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered, that he, uh, who, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Somehow this Messiah would be the substitute in our place, this branch out of a dry ground, this, which is a, a reference to the Messiah. This Messiah would be the lamb, the substitute in our place. But again, here the Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger. The Old Testament is incomplete. It, it, it is not done. It has a to be continued dot, dot, dot at the end. Who is this Messiah who sets up the kingdom? Who is this Messiah who crushes the head of the serpent? And and what does it mean that his heel is bruised? And how will he forgive our sins? How does this all work? On to chapter 3, sacrifice in Christ. Not just sacrifice in Eden, sacrifice in Israel, but now sacrifice in Christ. There's a a, a missions training agency or or organization called Radius International. And and one of their leaders by the name of Brooks Buser, he, he tells the story of how he went to this, this tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Yembe Yembe people. And how he spent time there learning their language and translating the Bible and then began teaching them the Bible. And, and, and he describes how when he began in Genesis and, and talked about how the fruit was eaten and, and, and it, it caused sin to enter the world. And there was a break between God and man that man no longer had a relationship with God. But there was the promise of the one who would come and undo the curse. The promise of the one who would crush the, the head of the serpent. Talking about all these things that we've been talking about. And, and then when he moved on to the next story to Cain and Abel, all of a sudden a Yembe Yembe tribesman st- said, stop, wait, wait, wait. Is that the one? Is it, well, what do you mean? Is that the one who makes things right between God and man? He's like, no, not yet. Sit down. And every time a new major character was introduced, somebody else would stand up. Wait, is that the one? No, not yet. But they understood. We're supposed to look for that one. They were waiting for that one. And so they go through the Old Testament. And, and finally, he tells the story of getting to John 1, talking about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist, in John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist stands on the shore and sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says, seven to ten of them stand up and say, Wait, 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 wait. Is that the one? And he said, It's the privilege of his life to say, Yes. And he said, the tribe went wild and nuts. And they're like, okay, stop the talk about the John who who dunks in water. We want to hear about this guy. And eventually, uh, uh, people are saved, baptized. A church is planted. I think the last thing I I remember hearing from him is that he's going back there to to check on them. And the elders of that church are beginning to send people to the next tribe. They got it. They were looking for the one. And they saw, John says, behold, Not the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not behold the king who is coming in his glory. Behold the lamb of God. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This, this reference to this lamb is pulling together all these threads from the Passover, pulling together these, these threads from the sacrificial system. Jesus is the lamb. He is the fulfillment of all these things. That's why in John 19, 36, it makes a reference to none of his bones were broken. Why? Because the Passover lamb's bones were not broken. That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul is able to say, for Christ our Passover lamb has been slain. Jesus is that lamb. In fact, if you remember these words in Matthew 3, in Matthew 3, Verse 17, this is the, the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized and he comes up, it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Son whom I love. Reminiscent of God's word to Abraham about Isaac. Jesus came as a king, but he came first as a substitute. Have you ever considered why Satan was tempting Jesus? Now, if you try to tempt me, or let's say this. If you try to tempt Pastor Daniel, don't offer him cheese. He's not going to take it. It's like, no, thank you. I'm good. But perhaps if you offered him ranch Doritos, someone says. And he's like, oh, man, ranch Doritos. Okay, temptation, get behind me, Satan. You tempt somebody with something that they want. Have you ever considered why did Satan try to tempt Jesus by offering him the kingdoms of the world? You ever thought about that? It's because Jesus is the Messiah who's supposed to reign over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus came to inherit, to rule over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus certainly wanted the kingdoms of the world. But Satan said, if you will bow down to me, I'll give you all these things. Jesus will one day get all the kingdoms of the world. So what was the temptation? The temptation was, skip the cross. Skip the cross, I'll give it to you. That's why later when Peter says... Jesus, this will never happen. Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed, crucified, all these things. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes Jesus. I mean, he rebukes Jesus anyway. He rebukes him. And Jesus doesn't say, no, no, you just don't get it. He says, get behind me, Satan. It's a satanic ploy to tempt Jesus to derail him from the cross. You don't need to be the lamb. Just be the lion. Just reign. Liberal theologians love to talk about the kingdom and restoration and peace, but without Jesus dying on a cross. It's, it's been summarized like this by, by, by a theologian named Richard Niebuhr. He says, a God without wrath, this is liberal theology, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Now we cling to the cross because we know that there is judgment, because we have sin, and so because we have sin, there is wrath, and so we need the cross. We need the cross. The kingdom is the end goal where we reign, to, reign with Christ forever, but the cross is the center point. The, the cross is the climax. The cross is the plot twist, the center of the story. That's why if you read the Gospel of John, you, you, 
you hear this phrase again and again. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Are you going to do this? No, my hour has not yet come. Will you heal us? No, my hour has not yet come. But then in John 12, in John 12, he says the hour has come. And it's, it's fascinating to hear his resolve here. In, in John 12, verse 20, listen to these words. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And, and so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There's this chain going up to Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He says, the hour has come. It's time for me to be glorified. And verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour? Wait, 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 Jesus, this is the hour you're supposed to be glorified. Why would you need to be saved from this hour? Why are you troubled? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The hour for Christ to be glorified is the hour that he dies. The hour for him to be glorified is the hour that he is lifted up on a cross. For this throne, high above the earth, would really be a cross lifting him up. He would have a crown of thorns and a sign over the cross saying, Behold the King of the Jews. Why is this the hour he is glorified? Because, remember, when God showed Moses his glory, he proclaimed his name and essentially said, I'm the Lord who forgives and I'm the the Lord who is righteous. Here, Jesus says, I'm about to be glorified because I'm going to fulfill those things. When Jesus dies on the cross, he is displaying the righteousness of God against sin. The guilty do not go unpunished because Jesus took their punishment. On the cross, Jesus shows the full display of God's mercy. Iniquity, transgression, and sin is forgiven. Why? Because Jesus pays for their forgiveness at the cross. How can God be forgiving and just? How can he be merciful and righteous? Because Jesus dies on the cross to do both. That's why Romans 3 says that Jesus died as a propitiation to demonstrate God's righteousness. And Romans 5 says that he died The good man for the sinner. The godly dies for the ungodly to demonstrate the love of God. The cross demonstrates the righteousness of God and the love of God. Romans 3 and Romans 5. The riddle of God's justice and mercy is solved and answered in the person of Christ on the cross. The cross is the the fullest and most glorious display of God's wrath and mercy. Every promise we have from God is bought by the blood of Christ. We're forgiven because he was crushed. We're accepted because he was forsaken. We're welcomed home because Jesus was sent away. We receive blessing from the cross because Jesus received curses on the cross. He is our substitute. The Lord will provide, and it was provided there on the cross. This is the idea of substitution, right? Uh, John Stott put it this way one time. He said that, The essence of sin is substitution. We 
substitute ourselves where only God belongs. God belongs on the throne. We substitute ourselves in place of God. That's the essence of sin. But he said the essence of salvation is also substitution because Jesus puts himself where only we deserve to be, on the cross. This substitutionary salvation. We've got to skip over some stuff. The cross is how Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. The cross is where the serpent reared its ugly head and, and bit the heel of Christ. But this was the, the victory move. After the cross, the, the victory had been won. It, it's like a moment in a chess match where one player stands up and walks away and the other player says, whoa, whoa hold on, this isn't checkmate. Oh, we still have a lot of moves to make. And, and the other player says, no, the end has been determined. No matter what you do, you have lost. The cross was that moment. It's all over for Satan. So on to the last chapter, sacrifice in heaven. Sacrifice in heaven. Remember, the book of Revelation, in two words, God wins. God wins. But I want you to see what the, the highlight here is, is in, in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, and this is a familiar passage to, to many of us. It says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This lion is here and he can do it. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and looked and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Jesus is the lion, yes, but he turns around and he sees the lamb standing as though, as one who had been slain. You see, the, the Old Testament looked forward to the lamb of God coming, to the, the son of David, to the, the king who would rule and reign, but also the king who would die for his people. And here in heaven, they still look back to the cross. It's interesting, Jesus still is the lamb 
who had been slain. He still bears the wounds. He still bears the marks. Even in his glorified state, you still see, no, he's the, the Savior who died for us. In his greatest moment of triumph, he is repeatedly and emphatically called the Lamb. The Lamb. And you see that again and again in Revelation 21 and 22. If you read those two chapters, it's all about the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. And so we see sacrifice from beginning to end. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, first, again, just just as we started in Luke 24, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would would have a burning heart. A burning heart when you read the scriptures. When you see Christ there, that your heart burns within you, burning with love for him, with zeal for his name, with zeal for holiness so that you would represent him well, with zeal for evangelism to tell people, behold the Lamb of God. He can take away your sin. He took away mine. But not only uh, is is one takeaway to have a a burning heart, but also I want you to trust in his work on the cross and trust in his heart. Romans 8 puts it this way, right? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? If God would give his most precious and beloved son for you, he will not withhold anything. Those of you who are longing to be married and are not, he's given you his son. He's not holding out on you. Those of you who long for a child and have not had one, the Lord's given you his son. He's not holding out on you. You can trust him because he's given it all for you already. Trust in him him for salvation, but also for your life now. I'm reminded of, oh no, okay, just time. Keep going, just finish. Last, prepare to suffer with Christ. Prepare to suffer with Christ. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Yes, and we follow that king. If you are hoping to get through life, to skate through unscathed by the world, unscathed by suffering, you will be sorely disappointed. We follow a crucified king. We follow one who said, if the world hated me, they will hate you too. Friend, we're, we're living in a time where to just, to stand for biblical truth, even in the most gracious and winsome way, you will be called a bigot. You'll be called extreme. You'll be called hateful. Are you ready? Are you ready to have the world hate you? Or do you just want to be liked? It's easy in this room to sing, but when we get out into the world and you're judged for this, will you stand? Will you stand? Prepare to suffer with Christ. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friend, will you trust in him? Will you have a burning heart for him? And will you prepare to suffer with him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Oh, Lord. Your word is inexhaustibly rich 
because your glories are inscrutable. We cannot get to the bottom of your ways. We cannot get to the bottom of who you are in all your fullness. But Lord, I pray that you would allow us even just now to to savor in the the taste of your word, the taste of your son, of what he has done for us. Lord, may you give us burning hearts for your son, the lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. We pray this in his name. Amen. As we reflect and sing.